All right, we're continuing on the holiness movement, the good, the bad, and the ugly, part three. And we finish today our survey of the history of the holiness movement today. And next week, we'll start into an evaluation, looking at Scripture, see what Scripture has to say specifically about what we have been learning about. We want to review for a few moments. We're noticing that we're tracing all of this back to John Wesley, who, 200 years after the Reformation, departed from the Reformation doctrine of sanctification, that justification issues in sanctification, and God begins the process of sanctification immediately upon our justification, our conversion. Wesley said no. It's possible to have a second work of grace, a second life-transforming experience by faith, a second faith, saved by faith, sanctified by faith. And others picked up on that. It was very appealing. It's hard to know why it's appealing. It's, it's appealing to people, actually, who are pretty good Christians. It appeals to people who, you know how... You've experienced this in your life, if you've been a Christian for long. There come periods of dullness, periods when you feel away from the Lord. You just, you just don't have it, you're just not with it, things are not like they should be. It's easy to look for another experience. And when this experience promises a higher, holier life, no more struggle with sin, no more temptation to sin, no more consciousness of sin, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. That would attract a lot of people who were interested in following Christ. So this doctrine of Christian perfectionism, as he called it, the second blessing, uh, entire sanctification, became Methodist doctrine in the 1800s. It was picked up by non-Methodists, particularly Charles Finney and his revivalism. And then Phoebe Palmer, I mentioned her last week. She became an extremely important person. Phoebe was, Phoebe was interested in this doctrine of sanctification, instantaneous sanctification, where there's no struggle with sin. And she finally got it, but it took her a long time. And so she came up with a new method, a simple method, her altar theology. Simply by consecration or dedication, total surrender you can have this experience of entire sanctification. And so I'm showing that there in the chart. Conversion, and then sometime later, consecration. And she made this very, very popular. Um, She made it so popular that it developed into a whole movement we call the holiness movement. Methodists, as I said last week, the Methodist church as a whole sort of gave up on entire sanctification as the 1800s wore on, and new denominations arose, Wesleyan Methodist. That's a different denomination. Wesleyan Methodist and um, the Church of the Nazarene. Various holist denominations grew up and and uh, picked up on this doctrine of the second blessing. <clears throat> Then this doctrine moved outside of Methodist circles into other evangelical circles. Others picked up on this, looking for this higher, happy life, 
this victory over sin. And as it moves out of Methodist circles, it becomes what's called the higher life movement. So it's really the same doctrine of Wesley, but now it becomes what's called the higher life movement. The the difference here is that as it moves out of Methodist circles, the people in the higher life movement, they... Though they, they keep the same experience of a second work of grace after justification that delivers you from the dominion of sin. You're not conscious of any known sin. <clears throat> they, they don't like Wesley's, uh, Wesley's terminology of eradication of sin. Wesley taught that sin is eradicated, totally eradicated. There's no more sin left in you. It's eradicated at this second blessing. Well, most people, most of us see that that's not really true. It's not possible to have that. So the higher life movement did away with this talk about eradication. They preferred to speak of the believer's dominion or victory over sin that results in deliverance from all conscience sinning. And I mentioned leaders in this movement. The, the man who we, 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 we credit with sort of starting this, William Boardman, who wrote a book called The Higher Life. And then we talked about Robert and Smith and Hannah Whitehouse Smith. These were people who were leaders in this movement. <clears throat> and on page 20, you can see I've kind of got the chart. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going down into the higher life movement. <clears throat> and that just naturally leads into what's called the Keswick movement. We're finally at the Keswick movement. The Keswick Movement, sometimes called the Victorious Life Movement. Now, this is a continuation of sort of the higher life movement. But it, we, we, we think of it as sort of beginning in the late 1800s. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, was holding meetings in England, meetings in London in 1873. And in connection with those meetings, in the morning, they would have meetings. The, 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 the revival meetings were at night. The evangelistic meetings were at night. But in connection with those meetings in the morning, they would have special prayer meetings and meetings to promote holiness. And they would be teaching some of this holiness doctrine in the mornings. And uh, this was during Modi's 1873 campaign. I'll say the leaders of this were Robert and Hannah Smith. William Boardman, also Asa Mann, you know, the colleague of Finney. He's over there. These meetings continue. So these meetings become so popular that even though Moody's, Moody's meetings are over, they continue these, these conferences, they call, these holiness kind of conferences. 1874, they had some meetings at Broadlands, then at Oxford in 1874. Uh, 1875 at Brighton from May 29th to June 7th. And as I say here, Moody threw his support behind these meetings. He says, let us lift up our hearts to seek earnestly a blessing on the Great Commission Convention that is now being held in Brighton, perhaps the most important meeting ever gathered. So Moody is behind this. He's supporting this <clears throat> interest in holiness and sanctification and so forth, the higher life. I quote here, the the man I quoted there was Barabbas, Stephen Barabbas. And I just mentioned him, his book is called So Great Salvation. 
It's an important book. Stephen Barabbas was a professor at Wheaton College. And in 1952, he wrote this book. The Keswick movement, these movements, didn't have any doctrinal statement per se or any any book that you could look at and say, okay, what does Keswick really teach and mean? Because these were just series of conferences where people would come in and teach and preach. But in 1952, Barabbas wrote this book, and this is sort of the textbook on Keswick. All the Keswick leaders said, this is the book. We, we, we support this. They put their imprimatur on this. So if you want to know what Keswick believes and teaches, this is the book by Stephen Barabbas. Keswick teaching was very popular at Wheaton College, at all the various evangelical schools. One of the converts I mentioned to this victorious life was a, was a uh, man by the name of Reverend T.D. Hartford Bathersby, vicar of St. John's Keswick, a parish in the Lake District of Northwest England. He organized a conference for July of 1875 that was held in a tent on the church grounds of his church there at Keswick, about three or four hundred attending. So when we when you use that, when I use that term Keswick and Keswick theology, it's actually the name of a location. So northwest of London, if you ever go to England, you should go to get there sometime, go to Keswick. You can go there. It's a beautiful district there, the Lake District in northwest England. And uh, so he, at his church, decided, I'm going to have one of these conferences on the grounds of my church at Keswick, Keswick, England. And they have had conferences there every since. And so we get the name Keswick from that location. Now, page 21 <clears throat> The man who was supposed to lead that conference at the church or on the church grounds there was Robert Pearsall Smith. We mentioned him last week and his wife, Hannah Whitehall Smith. They were He was supposed to lead this conference, <clears throat> but he was forced to drop out because of an indiscretion with a young woman in a hotel room. Remember, I said there's some ugly here, and this is unfortunately some of the ugly here. And it's very sad because he and his wife returned to the United States. They kind of dropped out from public life. They both actually apostatized. They both turned away from Christianity totally, gave up the faith. Very, 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 very sad ending. So what do you do? They picked another fellow, this fellow whose picture we have here, H.W. Webb Peblo. He, he was a Church of England clergyman. Uh, here's a quote from, from George Marsden, a well-known church historian. He said, this fellow Peblo dominated Keswick movement for almost 50 years and did a great deal to define Keswick teaching. Especially important was Webb Peblo's firm opposition to Methodist-type perfectionism. He and his fellow representatives of Keswick position objected to the recent Wesleyan views which taught the eradication, the eradication of the sinful nature in this life. So, remember I said that the non-Methodists didn't like this eradication terminology. They wanted the experience of Wesley, of Phoebe Palmer. They believed in dedication and consecration. They just didn't want to talk about it as eradication. As I say here, uh, they affirmed what's called a counteraction of the old and new natures. So, the, the old nature is not eradicated. I've tried to draw a diagram there <clears throat> it's just my own idea of trying to illustrate maybe what they're talking about. So you have the old nature and the new nature, two natures, and these natures are unchangeable. 
So you have victory over sin through the counteraction of the Spirit. When you come and dedicate and consecrate yourself, you're filled or baptized with the Spirit, and you're sort of on this higher plane. And you're walking around sort of in stasis. And, and, and so you're not consciously sinning. You're on this higher plane. But sin is not eradicated. It's just sort of held in check. Counteraction is the term that Keswick, uh, all Keswick people use. I just mentioned here that even though they used this terminology, they didn't distance themselves from Wesley. Walter Sloan's 1935 history of the movement claims all these previous people like Robert and Hannah Smith and other leaders as Keswick experiences. So even though they talked about their experiences as Wesleyan experiences, they said they really had the same experience. They just didn't, they just didn't use the right terminology. It wasn't eradication. It was this counteraction that was going on. I mentioned number three, Keswick teaching was first spread in America through Moody's Northfield conferences in Massachusetts. So remember, Moody was kind of involved in this in England. Moody had a conference center in his hometown in Northfield, Massachusetts. And over the years, he had schools there. He had conferences there. He had teachers come in and teach. And so it, people would come there to Northfield, uh, like C.I. Schofield and others. And they would be taught and uh, learn about these Keswick experiences. Uh, James M. Gray, as I say, took over the leadership of Moody Bible Institute in 1904, and he was very influential in establishing Keswick theology at Moody. Moody became sort of a bastion for Keswick theology. It's true for almost all evangelical schools, Bible colleges and Bible schools, except, say, for the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, for the most part, not all. Now, some, some like... Uh, some some Presbyterians were into this, but others were not. Another man that you probably don't know of is a man by the name of Charles G. Trumbull. He was the editor of a paper called the Sunday School Times. Now, nobody knows what the Sunday School Times is today, but at one time, that was... That was, that was it. <laughs> In religious circles, that was the paper. In the late 1800s, the early 1900s, Every Sunday school in America, no matter what denomination, they got the Sunday School Times. And they, and it was just a very important paper. They just spread religious news and everything. And remember, there's no internet, there's no TV. Everybody's reading papers and magazines. They're getting anything. And he, he became a convert and he spread Keswick teaching along with his assistant, Robert C. McQuilkin. McQuilkin founded Columbia Bible College. Columbia Bible College is a, has always been a strong supporter of Keswick teaching in the past. Um, he started an American Keswick conference in 1913. Now let me just jump ahead and say that this Keswick teaching that we're going to talk about is fading today. It's fading everywhere today. It's still, there's still a lot of people who hold to it. There are some schools, but it's fading generally. It's fading at most of these schools that we're talking about. There still is Keswick, Keswick conferences in England and America. But if you went there today, you might not hear any Keswick teaching at all. You might hear people who are opposed to Keswick teaching, actually. 
because it's just become a Bible conference now, and the Keswick emphasis is sort of fading away. I mentioned at the bottom here, uh, though Keswick teaching agrees with holiness teaching, number four, that sanctification comes as a Christ experience separate from justification, so holiness through faith, it moved away from the idea that believer's tendency to sin is extinguished or eradicated, but as we've noted, counteracted by the Holy Spirit. Now, some people who were associated with this movie, this movement, like Moody and his assistant, Ari Torrey, they used the term baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Wesley, when he talked about the experience, he never talked about the Holy Spirit. But as time went along, people talked about this second blessing as dedication or consecration. It's also the baptism or filling of the Spirit. We'll have to talk about that. But Moody and Torrey continued to use the term baptism, but Keswick moved away from that. Keswick teachers preferred the term filling, so most of the time you hear about the filling of the Holy Spirit. This filling produces a life of victory over conscious sin, Barabbas says. James M. Gray argued that the believer's filling provides power for a life of victory over every known sin. So it's the same Wesleyan doctrine, same holiness doctrine, it's just we're not talking about eradication, but counteraction now. Now, as I said last time, this is a fantasy that, that produces a victory over conscience sin. Remember, I quoted Murray last time who said, if you're not conscious of any sin in your life, you're either a hypocrite or you're deceived, one or the other. This is a fantasy that you can have this kind of experience, as we'll see. But there it is. Conversion, justification, you're a carnal Christian, we'll have to talk about that, what that means. And then consecration, your victory over conscious sin. So I say in number five, there are two types of Christians in Keswick teaching. The average or carnal Christian behaves much like an unbeliever. Keswick conventions are spiritual clinics designed to turn the average carnal Christian into a normal or spiritual one. One who's filled with the Spirit. This transformation from the carnal to the spiritual Christian takes place not by a long struggle, but by a simple act of faith. Trumbull argues that the secret to the victorious life is for the Christian to make an unconditional and absolute surrender to God in faith. One must not strive for spiritual victory. Rather, one must simply let go and let God. H.C.G. Mule, probably Keswick's best theologian, Describe the state of victory for the believer as a blessed and wakeful quietism. This goes back to the Quaker influence here. Remember, quietism believes that all initiatives on our part toward holiness are only efforts of the flesh. They, they believe you have to remain passive, let go and let God. Now, this is just the opposite of the truth. As we'll see, in sanctification... Sanctification involves our participation. There are things we must do. So you wonder about these people. You say, were these, I've said these people were godly people and all that. How did I say that? Well, because if you could get the Bill Combs formula for sanctification, it's not the Bill Combs formula, but if we had to just say one thing about sanctification, we could say it comes down to obedience. Now, there's a lot more involved. And there's a lot these people have left out that we'll get to. But it comes down to obedience to the word. 
And all Christians want to obey the word. These people did. And as we obey the word, we grow. We are sanctified. We become holy. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say about that, but that's the basic thing. So these people, they were godly people because they had tried to obey the scripture. They believed the scripture and so forth. But they believe that to get this experience, it's an absolutely passive surrender. Don't do anything. Just come forward. Well, that's totally contrary to Scripture. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, If by the Spirit... Now, here's a verse Keswick never mentions, one of the most important verses on sanctification in the Bible, Romans 8, 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you do it... Now, we don't do it on our own. We do it by the Holy Spirit, but we got to do something in sanctification. It's not this quietism, let go and let God. So there is the victory over sin, the counteraction. Page uh, 23. It appears that Keswick teaching was the first to describe the second blessing as surrendering to Christ's lordship. We hadn't heard that idea before. We know it's you surrender, you consecrate, you're filled with the Spirit, but now also lordship. Here's what Barabbas says. Very many Christians at conversion know almost nothing of taking Christ to be their master. They take Jesus to take away their sins, to bring them to heaven, to help them when they pray. But they never think of saying that they are no more long going to have their own will and that Jesus must have their will every hour. And there is the real need to put one's whole life under the management of Jesus. As the divine potter, he cannot shape the human vessel unless it's committed into his hands and remains unresistingly and quietly there. Quietly. If we are to be used by him in the performance of his will, the supreme and undivided lordship of Jesus Christ must be a fact in our lives. William Graham Scroggie's well-known Keswick speaker said, There are multitudes of Christians who do not know Christ as Lord, as master of the whole life. And if I understand the innermost significance of the Keswick movement, it is to expound this matter and to press it upon those who attend. So I've just put the diagram there again. This consecration brings about you accept Christ as the Lord of your life. I mentioned in number seven, most Christians today have had little contact with John Wesley. They haven't read his Christian perfection or anything like that. But they may have read various Keswick writers. Here's some of the well-known names. A.T. Pearson, F.B. Meyer, Andrew Murray has written a lot of books. You'll find his books around. <clears throat> Schofield, J. Hudson Taylor, Charles Trumbull I mentioned. When I was doing this, I, I, I recalled, I hadn't thought about it before, but the last name, W. Ian Thomas. Uh, it was actually Major Thomas, but I had forgotten about him because I told you the church where I was saved, the pastor, uh, taught this Keswick theology. He never called it Keswick, but we were always going to the altar. We were always dedicating our lives. We were, he was always talking about the higher life, this blessed experience. You know, he was always talking about it. But this man, Thomas, wrote a book called If I Perish, I Perish. If I Perish, I Perish. 
And the subtitle is The Christian Life as Seen in Esther. Remember the line, if I perish, I perish, is Esther's line when she goes into the king. And she not, you know, you're not supposed to go to the king unless you're invited. You'll be killed. And she says, well, I'm going to go in and if I perish, I perish. Remember that? Well, our pastor got these books, these little paperbacks I can remember. I was asking my wife if she remembered. She didn't remember. But I remember those paperbacks, and he got them, and we gave them to us. And we went through that thing chapter by chapter. And what this fellow does is he takes the story of Esther, and through that Esther story, he teaches Keswick sanctification. So Esther becomes an allegory. Esther represents the human spirit. Mordecai represents the Holy Spirit. The king represents the soul, and Haman represents the flesh. <laughs> it's more than I can take now, but <laughs> I don't know. It sounded as, well, we tried, I don't know. I just don't remember that much about it, but I just remember we went through it, and we were using Esther to teach this Keswick sanctification. I mentioned finally here Keswick theology is commonly seen in the lines of many hymns. Many of our hymns have been influenced by Keswick theology. Francis Havergale was probably the most famous writer who wrote particularly for Keswick. Her hymn, like, like a River Glorious, is God's perfect peace. Perfect peace in this state of higher second blessing. Overall victorious. You see, you're totally victorious. Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. I mean, when you think about that, it sounds okay, but see, you've got to understand what was behind this. The Keswick theology was behind what they were writing here. Or Fanny Crosby, a lot of her songs reflect Keswick infants. Perfect submission. See, not just submission, but perfect, absolute, total submission. All is at rest. There's no activity here when you get the second blessing. It's rest. Is your all on the altar? You have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase, and you've earnestly, fervently prayed, but you cannot have rest, rest, total rest. Let go, let God, and be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. Other hymns very similar to that. <clears throat> so there are hymns that emphasize this dedication and consecration. So in the churches that I have been involved in, there's always been the Keswick influence because there's always been this emphasis on dedication, a second thing in your life. You've been saved, but now you need to dedicate your life. This is especially true of revival meetings. I've been involved in many, many revival meetings. And uh, there was always a twofold message in revival meetings. There was salvation and sanctification, our salvation and dedication. And so the evangelist always had um, two purposes in mind. He would come to preach salvation of the lost and to the rest of us, us wicked sinners out there in the pew, we need to dedicate our lives. And you were expected to come forward at every revival meeting, you know. And if you didn't come forward, sometime during that revival meeting, there was something wrong with you. You didn't love the Lord or something. And so there was, there's a magazine still produced called The Sword of the Lord. If you've heard of The Sword of the Lord, John R. Rice, famous evangelist. But in The Sword of the Lord, <clears throat> it was a magazine with sermons and 
it was uh, talked about evangelism and evangelist, promoted evangelist. But they had a column in there reporting the results of evangelists and their meetings. So evangelist so-and-so, evangelist so-and-so, and they'd list the evangelist. And they would give two things, how many salvation decisions and how many dedications. There was always those two things. And so if you're a church pastor, hey, get the sword of the Lord. Hey, this guy had 50 salvations decisions and 75 dedications. I want that guy, you know, I want that guy to come in because he, he can really produce these kinds of things. Well, I've got a summary of teaching there <clears throat> to save time. Let's go on and look at page 25. <clears throat> Chaferian theology. As I say here, though some of us have been exposed to this teaching, maybe through Keswick teachers directly, most have been directly impacted through the theology of Lewis Sperry Chafer, especially as his views have been propagated by the seminary he founded, Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, again, I feel bad about this because I'm going to say a lot of negative things about Chafer's view of sanctification. But I should say, Chafer was a great man. He was a, he was a man who was really sort of self-taught. He took some classes from Schofield and others, but he was mostly self-taught and so really brilliant in that sense. He founded a great seminary in many ways. <clears throat> Probably most of the teachers who trained me were Dallas Seminary grads. Most of my friends are Dallas Seminary grads, you know. So I'm very tight with Dallas Seminary. And But today, Keswick theology is not that strong there. It's not strong anywhere today. It's fading and fading. But it, it, Dallas Theological Seminary was founded on Keswick theology. And I appreciate so much about them. Dispensationalism, premillennialism, you know, I'm all for all that, and, and we owe a great deal to their school. But I'm not happy about the Keswick theology that was taught there. So Schaefer attended Oberlin College. Well, remember Oberlin, that's Finney, Asa Mann. His major influence was C.I. Schofield. He met in 1901 while Schofield was teaching at Moody's Northfield Training School. Schaefer went there. He went to these Northfield conferences. He heard about the victorious life. He heard from victorious life teachers. And later with another fellow, W.H. Griffith Thomas, they founded Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. And I say the theology of which is distinctively Keswick. Now, I'm quoting there from the Dictionary of Christian America, and the man who wrote that article on page 238 is John Hanna. John Hanna is the chairman of the Church History Department forever at Dallas Seminary. This is the chairman of the Church History Department. I'm not saying it. This is the chairman of the Church History Department that Dallas says it was founded on Keswick theology. No one really doubts that. Keswick Theology B has continued to teach that the second blessing results in the believers living a life of uniform, sustained victory over sin, over known sin. You can find the same thing in Schaefer. Schaefer wrote a book in 1918 called He That Is Spiritual. He That Is Spiritual. And in that book, he says the same thing, sustained victory over known sin. What he shares, what Schaefer shares with all second blessing theologies, going back to Wesley, is the distinction between justification and sanctification as separate works of grace. 
This can be seen in the writings even of Dallas graduates. So if you look at Dallas graduates, as we will, I just mentioned a doctoral dissertation as late as 1968 by William Lawrence, where he distinguished between saving faith and sanctifying faith. So there, the chart is Keswick theology as taught by Chafer. Page 26. From the time of Phoebe Palmer's Altar Theology Forward, Second Blessing advocates have universally argued for the need of a crisis act of dedication or surrender as essential for progressive sanctification. Schaefer's student at Dallas and Dallas professor of theology, Charles Ryrie, agrees. So Schaefer became the first president. I've left out Walvard. I just don't have time to mention everybody here. John Walvard was Schaefer's successor and then uh, Chafer, uh, then Ryrie. Ryrie studied under Walvert and under Chafer. We know Ryrie, Dr. Ryrie, from his study Bible and so forth. And I've been helped immensely by many things that Chafer, that Ryrie said, but not sanctification in this area. So here's Ryrie in his book called Balancing the Christian Life. You should see my copy. My copy is well worn. I, I spent a lot of time in that book over the years. 1969, he wrote this book. I read it first about 1971, something like that. He says, there is perhaps no more important matter in relation to the spiritual life than dedication. Before any lasting progress can be made in the road of spiritual living, the believer must be a dedicated person. It's the basic foundation for sanctification. Referring to Romans 12, 1, he says, first of all, there must be an initial decisive and crisis presentation. This is represented in the Greek by the aorist infinitive used here and reinforced by the aorist imperative in Romans 6.13. Therefore, the presentation of the body is a single irrevocable act of surrender rather than a series of repeated acts of dedication. And I say this is diagram. The diagram below here is really Ryrie's diagram from his book Balancing the Christian Life. So you're unsaved, you get saved, you're a carnal Christian, you have to get this dedication, Romans 12, 1, and then you can start making progress, you're a spiritual Christian. And Ryrie bases this, this idea of there's a single irrevocable act of surrender never to be repeated on what he calls the aorist tense in Romans 12, 1. We'll have to talk about that. That is totally fallacious. And nobody at Dallas believes that today. The best Greek grammarian today is teaches at Dallas Seminary, and he would totally reject this, this idea of what Ryrie just said there. But we'll talk about it in the coming weeks here. <clears throat> but this was a common thing. Back when I was coming along, others were coming along, you got saved, but then you had to get this act of dedication. And this was an important event in your life. Pastor Ken and I have a friend who retired this year from teaching at the seminary where I taught, Detroit Baptist Seminary. He retired this year. And I was in his office a few weeks ago, and I was looking at... He was getting things off the shelf and getting rid of books, and he had a, a Thompson Chain reference Bible there. Back in the day, we either had a Schofield reference Bible or a Thompson Chain reference Bible, usually one of the two. So he pulls that Thompson Chain reference Bible out, and... Um, on the inside cover, he makes reference there to two important dates in his life. He's got them written down there, so you can't forget them. The first reference says this. 
saved on March 1st, 1969, between 3 and 5 a.m. Then the second reference says, surrendered, presented my body once and for all a living sacrifice, May 24th, 1973, 1 a.m. So you, you, you record those dates specifically and put them down and nail them down. Notice D here. <clears throat> Until the believer has experienced this single one act of dedication, he may be justified, but there can be no real, real spiritual progress, no sanctification. This is because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is essential to sanctification, or as Ryrie observes, control by the Spirit is a necessary part of spirituality. And according to Ryrie, without, without initial dedication, there can be no real experience of this vital ministry. Thus, dedication is a prerequisite for being filled with the Spirit, allowing the work of progressive sanctification to begin. This dedication is a once-for-all act never to be repeated, one should never speak of rededication, Ryrie says, only of confession and restoration. And most people didn't follow that. The churches I've been in, you just come, you just rededicate, you rededicate, you rededicate. But Ryrie says, no, rededication, one, you dedicate one time and you may, you may reaffirm that, but you don't rededicate. But not many people follow that. Page 27. The Schaeferian separation of justification and sanctification from sanctification can be seen in its division of Christians into two categories, carnal and spiritual. These go all the way back to Asa Man. But Chafer, when he, when he was at the Dallas Seminary, began each year with a week of lectures on the basic requirement for effective seminary study found in yielding to the Holy Spirit, which sets forth this basic distinction between carnal and spiritual Christian. The carnal Christian has experienced salvation from the guilt and penalty of sin, in other words, justification, but he still needs a distinct form of salvation from the bond servitude to sin. The child of God does not yield to temptation when he reaches the higher plane of the spiritual man. This is from Ryrie. This is from He That's Spiritual, Schaefer's book. Thus, all Christians are in the category of carnal Christians until they experience the once-for-all crisis of dedication that moves them to the higher plane of the spiritual Christian. This is where sanctification begins. F, this separation of justification from sanctification includes a rejection of Christ's lordship in conversion because it is only at the time of believer's one-time act of dedication that he submits the lordship of Christ. So I'm showing that in that final chart. You get saved, you accept Christ as Savior, but at the dedication, consecration, second blessing, that's when you accept Christ as Lord. I say here, until the rise of the Keswick theology with its separation of justification and sanctification, it was universally believed that to accept Christ as Savior also means to accept him as Lord. For example, Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul doesn't disconnect lordship from the initial act of salvation. Both Chafer and Ryrie denied that saving faith includes anything about Christ's lordship in salvation. Ryrie goes so far in his book, Balancing the Christian Life, page 170, to say that what we teach in our church is a false gospel. He says, if you say in your church... That when you are saved, you are trusting Christ as Lord. 
That is a false gospel, he says. You're under the curse of Galatians 1. If you'll remember, when people are baptized in this church, if you were here last week for the baptism service, uh, uh, Sunday afternoon, Pastor Ken always asked two questions to people who come forward, the six people who came last week and were baptized. He asked them these two questions. He said, have you placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and are you looking to him alone for forgiveness of sin? Yes. Second question, do you promise to follow him in obedience all the days of your life? So Pastor Ken is connecting that with their conversion, not with some later experience. Rory says that's a false gospel. Gee, if you have been in our worship service for any time, you've seen Pastor Ken put a slide up at the end of the message, inviting the unsaved to accept Christ. He has four bullet points. Realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Repent of your sins. I'm going to go your way, not my way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. And I put Grudem's chart there trying to show what conversion. Conversion is repentance, turning from sin, and faith, turning to Christ, trusting Christ. Conversion is the single act of turning from sin and turning to Christ. Wayne Grudem defines repentance as a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to, to Christ. Both Chafer and Ryrie deny that unsaved people need to repent of their sins in order to be saved. Turning from sin comes later at the second work of grace dedication. So what does Ryrie say about what the, when the Bible talks about you need to repent? Ryrie says repentance is changing your mind about who Jesus is. You repent by believing that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus is God. So repentance is believing that Jesus is God. That's repentance. You change your mind about Jesus. Repentance has nothing to do with changing your mind about sin. You change your mind about sin at the second blessing, at your dedication. I say here in H, with Chafer and Ryrie, the biblical doctrine of faith is flattened of most of its content. Since the Reformation, saving faith has been said to consist of three elements, knowledge, assent, or approval, and trust. One must know the facts of the gospel, the person, and work of Christ. Last week, Pastor Ken, he used that phrase, the person and work of Christ, three times last week in his message. The person. You've got to know who Jesus is, and you've got to know what he did for you. He died for your sins. One must assent to the truthfulness of these facts, agree that they are true. Finally, and maybe most importantly, one must trust, that is, commit oneself to the truth of the gospel. One must depend on Jesus personally. But with Chafer and Ryrie, faith is stripped of the element of commitment. Commitment comes later at the time of the second work of grace, dedicationally. Amazingly, I say here, a disciple of Chafer and Ryrie, a man by the name of Zane Hodges, who himself was a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, 27 years, Zane Todges taught at Dallas, went so far to say, this was toward the end of his life, just passed away a few years ago, he said, people are not saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross. Get that. 
People are not saved by believing that people died on the cross. They are saved by in believing in Jesus for eternal life. He says this in an article called How to Lead People to Christ. So this thing that Schaefer and Ryrie, it really goes way astray with Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges <clears throat> strips faith of everything. It's just an intellectual ascent. So how are you saved? Just believe that Jesus, a man named Jesus, will give you eternal life. If you believe that, you're going to heaven. And they say, they have, this, this movement is going on. There are churches who hold this position. They have a society called the Evangelical Theological Society. They put out magazines. The editor of that said this recently. You may get to heaven and find out that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Ah, you may wonder what other evangelicals thought about these ideas. Well, there was a lot of pushback in the 1960s. I mean, where I taught, where other people taught, people were writing books, writing stuff. I mentioned earlier that Ryrie had said that the teaching of the commitment to Christ as an element of faith is a perversion of the gospel and puts one under the curse of Galatians 1, 6 through 9. The most important response to and rejection of this idea was by John F. MacArthur in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, in 1988. So people were upset, people were writing, but the most well-known book was by John MacArthur. Here's a sample of what MacArthur says. The gospel in vogue today holds forth a false hope to sinners. They can have eternal life, yet continue to live in rebellion against God. Indeed, it encourages people to claim Jesus as Savior, yet defer until later the commitment to obey him as Lord. It promises salvation from hell, but not necessarily freedom from iniquity. It offers false security to people who revel in the sins of the flesh and spurn the way of holiness. By separating faith from faithfulness, it teaches that the intellectual assent is as valid as a wholehearted obedience to the truth. Thus, the good news of Christ has given away has given way to the bad news of an insidious, easy believism that makes no moral demands in the lives of sinners. It is not the same message Jesus proclaimed. This book caused a real firestorm. Ryrie comes back with his own book, So Great Salvation. Hodges comes back. Thankfully, I say, the position of Ryrie, Chafer, Zane Hodges is in the minority. Even at Dallas, they're not as strong on this. They're not that strong at all. Now, they'll never invite John MacArthur to speak at, just, just mark this down. John MacArthur will never speak at Dallas Seminary, I, I can tell you that. Uh, in fact, I wrote an article about this, and I'll never speak at Dallas Seminary because they didn't like what I wrote about this particular thing. I close here with B.B. Warfield, and I've gone over here, but let me just finish. B.B. Warfield was the, one of the greatest theologians America's ever produced, a brilliant man. <clears throat> he was living at the end of the 1800s and 1900s. He understood this Keswick movement. He understood this theology all very well. He wrote a book called Perfectionism. It's a very good book. It's a little hard slugging at places. He says, he concluded this. Here's his conclusion. That the teaching of Chafer and those like him is indistinguishable from what is ordinarily understood by the doctrine of the second blessing, a second work of grace, the higher life. Next week, we start our critique, our evaluation of this theology, looking at various scripture texts to see what the Bible actually says. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. 
Give us receptive hearts to the truth of Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.